So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to China Talk. What does China want? How do you even go about answering that question? Is there a consensus in Washington on how to confront China? Does that consensus make any sense whatsoever? Today we have on two guests to discuss. The first is Ali Wine, legitimately the nicest person on China Twitter, who has worked at RAND and a lot of other DC think tanks. Our other guest today is Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor at Cornell and editor at the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. Jessica and Ali, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. So Jessica, what's the best way at trying to approach the question of understanding what China wants? This is a really tough question because what China wants is constantly contested domestically and it's also being updated as China's domestic and international reality changes. And so it's important to study both what China's leaders say as well as what they do. Both rhetoric and action are useful, but they're both imperfect. So, for example, key documents and slogans can set a direction, um, but they're also deliberately vague. And so inevitably they are contested as lower level actors figure out how to implement them. And we also see what I consider to be a lot of bluster, which is a lot of tough but ultimately vague talk that provides the Chinese government with cover with domestic audiences when it decides to show some kind of pragmatic restraint, but still wants to shore up public approval when it doesn't take real action. There's been a lot of, uh, of talk in particular and a handful of white papers that have gotten a lot of traction, basically with Western scholars putting a lot of emphasis on the rhetoric part and creating a narrative from very scary-sounding Chinese policy documents and, and speeches by by Xi and other senior leaders. What is it about the rhetoric in historically as well as in the present day, which, which you wouldn't necessarily use as, as 100% predictive of where uh, Chinese foreign policy is going? I think it's important to recognize that there's been a lot of this kind of rhetoric for as long as the People's Republic of China has been in existence, but that Chinese behavior has varied dramatically uh, over this time period. And particularly in the reform era, as China has become more influential on the world stage, we also need to look at not only this rhetoric, but also at what the Chinese government has been doing around the world. Has it in fact been putting its thumb on the scales and working toward changing other governments so that they look more like China's? Or rather, have they been much more pragmatically focused on ensuring that other countries toe the one China line, but otherwise don't involve themselves that much in in exactly the details of how those countries decide to govern themselves? And I think oftentimes when we you'll see analysts pointing to some of this more inflammatory or, or scary rhetoric, frankly, you also don't see them citing the cases in which there's also rhetoric, but reassuring rhetoric that says explicitly, for example, China doesn't seek to force other countries to copy Chinese methods, nor does China seek to export a model. Those more reassuring pieces of rhetoric are often not held up or examined alongside uh, those other speeches. So I think that there's uh, it's important to be you know, very careful in analyzing both the rhetoric side as well as the behavior side. Now, action itself, of course, is not a perfect 
guide the Chinese intentions either because it reflects the reality of the material constraints that China's government faces. And ultimately, when you combine the two, action and rhetoric, you get closer to understanding the concentric circles of what the Chinese government needs and what it wants, but might not be willing to fight so hard to get. So in my view, what China needs is regime security, first and foremost, a world safe for autocracy. And without that, they can't achieve many other objectives. And increasingly, regime security has been defined in terms of defeating threats to territorial integrity in, say, Xinjiang or in Hong Kong, but also in terms of ideological insecurity, this idea that at the end of history lies democracy. So for the CCP, regime security has also meant challenging universal values and aspects of the international order that are most liberal and threaten the CCP's continued rule. But at the same time, there are things that China wants but isn't urgently moving to achieve. So, for example, China, I think, under the CCP needs to prevent, say, Taiwan's independence, but it wants reunification. I think that distinction between what they need and what they want in the moment is important. And so that's why I think you have even Hawks Chaoyang saying earlier this spring that the time isn't right for using force to take back Taiwan. And that, quote, China's ultimate goal is not the reunification of Taiwan, but to achieve the dream of national rejuvenation so that all 1.4 billion Chinese can have a good life. So you have here, I think, this willingness amongst some Chinese to distinguish between sort of levels of resolve in terms of the lengths to which China will go to achieve its you know, end objectives. It's interesting that you brought up the historical context with that, Jessica, because of course, Mao is preaching global revolution. And even though China was incredibly poor when he was in power, was he was spending for the Chinese government's outrageous sums of money to, to fund movements and train leaders who were came back to their countries and tried to you know, overthrow various regimes. So zooming out a little further, you definitely see that if you really want wolf warrior diplomacy, look back to the to the 60s. But uh, coming back to your coming back to your point there, Jessica, what do you think is like a reasonable, given the challenges of this trying to do this sort of interpretation, what do you think is a reasonable confidence interval? How certain is it even possible for foreign analysts to be about about Chinese foreign policy intentions? I think there's a lot of uncertainty going into the future. It's one thing to try to figure out what it is now, but then you're looking five, 10 years down the pike, it could be a completely different China that we see. So uh, ultimately, this is, you know, it's a moving target and one in which I think we all need to be a bit more humble about our ability to say with certainty, this is uh, what China wants. Yeah, I guess the, the counter argument would be, if we get it wrong, and you take a more, there are counter arguments on both sides, being missing too hawkish and missing too dovish both have you know, negative consequences. And it's you have to balance wh- which side, which of the downsides is, is potentially worse. At the same time, you have to be careful not to uh, take actions that make it more likely that we see the kind of China we don't want to face. In preparing for the worst, we may also be sending not just preparing for, but assuming the worst, we may also be sending signals that there are no other options for trying to to pursue besides one that involves an all-out existential competition to the death. There are a number of variables that complicate the picture. And and I would go one step further and stipulate that we have to look, engaging the, the China challenge, for lack of a better phrase, you have to assess not only China's intentions as best as you can discern them, but also the capabilities that China would be able to bring to bear in pursuing its intentions. 
So let's stipulate just for argument's sake, and I think that, that Jessica in her own scholarship has demonstrated that China's long-term strategic intentions are far from settled. But let's stipulate for argument's sake that China indeed uh, seeks global hegemony. Uh, it seeks to not only displace the United States as the preeminent Pacific power, but in due course to achieve global hegemony. Uh, let's stipulate for, for argument's sake that it, it has that intention. Um, I think it's then important to ask, would China be able to achieve that objective plausibly? Now, and again, of course, as Jessica was saying, we need to be humble about our our prognostications. But it seems to me that far from whatever pretensions China might theoretically have uh, to global hegemony, uh, it seems to me that China is increasingly encircled in even pursuing regional hegemony. Uh, if you look at the difficulties that China faces in dealing with Hong Kong, with Taiwan, the members of, of the Quad are intensifying security cooperation with one another. So even in China's immediate neighborhood, if you look at uh, Japan, Australia, South Korea, India, these are uh, formidable economic powers. These are formidable military powers. And the idea that China would be able to ride roughshod over those types of powers, it, it, it strains credulity. And so I, I would echo what Jessica says and just add in that we need to assess intentions. And that's a very difficult, tricky business. Uh, we also have to look at capabilities. And even if we assume the maximalist uh, case for China's intentions, I, I think that there still is quite an imbalance between even the most maximalist pretensions that China might have in theory and the capabilities that it would be able to bring to bear in service of those objectives. Sure. Coming back one more time to the epistemological question, in one of your one of your course descriptions, Jessica, you talked about how you hope to explore and examine the different ways in which scholars and professionals have written about and come to understand China. Are, are there any methods you'd like to highlight that you think are particularly underutilized today? The China field has seen a proliferation, a flourishing of different methods. But what I'm con- particularly uh, concerned about is the increased difficulty of um, access to China on the ground to sort of this window onto the incredible diversity and heterogeneity that exists inside China. We're increasingly having difficulty seeing that for ourselves because not only, you know, have the Chinese side imposed increasing restrictions, making it hard for scholars, journalists, and others to work, including closing archives, increasing the risk of arbitrary detention, and in general, the increased climate of of fear, making uh, interviews and and conferences less productive. But on top of that, you have uh, the United States in the name of uh, reciprocity and national security have also, I think, put in place a series of fundamentally counterproductive restrictions, such as the cancellation of the Fulbright program Mm -hmm. uh, to China and Hong Kong, uh, as well as, and this isn't even, I think, necessarily a formal policy, but a a real problem that we're seeing, which is that students don't want to study in China anymore because they're afraid that that once they come back uh, after whatever semester abroad, they won't be able to get the security clearance uh, or a job with the U.S. government later on. And so in the name of reciprocity and national security, I think we've basically been wittingly or unwittingly cutting off our own eyes and ears into all the complexity that is China. Now, uh, we are compromising cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, and the less of a window that the United States and China have into one another, the more likely they are to impute malign motives and to impute malign motives to each other's behavior, to ascribe maximalist intentions to one another. And that type of those types of imputations, they reinforce one another in very 
uh, counterproductive ways. Jessica, the other day, gave an interview to the New York Times in which she talked about this, quote, death spiral uh, in which the U.S.-China relationship finds itself. And some modicum of transparency is essential to pushing back on that death spiral. But um, imagine the consequence. And I think there's a temporal dimension here as well. So over the long term, if we see a continued erosion of exchanges, whether military to military exchanges, government to government, educational exchanges, cultural exchanges, so on and so forth. Over the long term, yeah. if God, you knows, have, God knows when the NBA is going back to China. Yeah. And if so, over the long term, that type of steady erosion uh, that percolates down to the level of society, societal society to society exchanges has, I think, very significant, could have very significant consequences for the ability of these two countries to forge some long-term durable modus vivendi. But there's also a a short-term dimension, which is its crisis management, particularly in the South China Sea. If you look at Secretary of State Pompeo's recent declaration regarding the South China Sea, if you look at China's increasing pressing of its maritime claims in the South China Sea, and given the extant impoverishment of military-to-military ties between the United States and China, um, given the lack of de-escalation mechanisms between the two countries' navies, you now layer on top of those extant difficulties the corrosion of insight, mutual insight into one another, and you have a recipe for potential uh, escalation. Uh, in this, I think the South China Sea is the most, it seems to be the most likely site of escalation, but you could also imagine... You could also imagine escalation in vis-a-vis Taiwan, Hong Kong, perhaps even India, although that seems a bit further of a stretch. But again, the point is that one doesn't need to be starry-eyed about engagement or starry-eyed about the the potential of cultural exchanges to recognize that just in a very realist sense, in terms of assuring each other's vital national interests, some modicum of exchange is essential. And I do worry that we're going in a direction in which the world's two foremost powers, economically and militarily, are preventing themselves from understanding one another. And, and that can't have uh, that can't have salutary implications. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate here for a second. If you look at polling numbers of the U.S. in the Iranian population, like when you poll Iranians about the U.S., I think they there's like a they're basically America gets like higher numbers than it does anywhere else in the world. Maybe there's a way in which the countries decoupling on various extents make them less likely to trip over each other. Is there any case you guys would like to entertain uh, some ties being separated end up lowering the chances of conflict in the future? So I think there's definitely reasons to erect some guardrails around key sensitive technologies to address the real concerns of military-backed espionage. Uh, I don't think either of us is arguing for just like completely open, arms wide open, complete access. I think that there's a long way away from those uh, kinds of educational and scientific exchanges. And of course, there are concerns there too, but um, you know, do those merit the sudden closing of a consulate and this sort of existential clash? Currently, I make $4 an hour from donations, adding up all the time it takes to prep, record, and edit this show. This is the 99th episode of Time Talk. If this show has meant something to you over the past few months and years, and you'd like to see it continue at the current frequency of one episode a week, please consider donating at glow.fm slash Chinatalk. Thank you. I think that because there is understandably a lot of disillusionment in the United States with the trajectory of the relationship and the trajectory that China has taken domestically and abroad, there is there's a natural desire to course correct, but recalibration, of course, it entails, intrinsically, it entails the risk of overcorrection. And I do worry that 
this narrative, which has increasingly taken hold, that America's erstwhile policy of engagement hedge, it was a manifest failure, that virtually nothing, you know, that our policy failed, the United States naively facilitated the resurgence of what is now its its foremost strategic competitor. Again, no one is saying that engagement was without, that the engage and hedge policy was without flaws. No one is saying that that perhaps the United States might not have pursued it differently at certain points. But I think to pro- want to pronounce a policy of failure, one, I, I think is to ignore some important important benefits that engagement introduced that helped to erect the kinds of guardrails, at least up until recently, had prevented innate strategic distrust from translating into uncircumscribed uh, kinetic competition or economic competition. And it also, it it does beg the question, the kind of the counterfactual question, is there an alternative policy that the United States could have pursued that would have prevented China from eventually contesting certain elements of the post-Cold War settlement from eventually, as it became more capable, from pushing back against certain U.S. norms and preferences? And it's not clear to me that uh, the counterfactual scenarios that might arise are, are especially compelling. So it's, so I, I guess what I would say is that we need to pursue selective, considered decoupling, but again, with the emphasis on considered, we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the accumulated benefits that engagement has accrued over some four decades. And we need to think very hard about where we are headed next. I, I think it's because there's so much as this, and there's so much that's just occurring on a day-to-day basis in terms of tit-for-tat retaliation, I think that we haven't fully appreciated how swiftly and how thoroughly the relationship has deteriorated over the course of just the past six months. And I worry that we're going to look back six months from now or a year from now, and what happens if we say to ourselves, goodness, the United States and China have really crossed this Rubicon in which they have transitioned from a mode of tense competitive cohabitation into one of enduring protracted acrimony. And it's difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. So let's have a discussion about recalibration. Let's have a discussion about renegotiating the terms of interdependence. But let's also be sure that we don't overcorrect so far that, one, we enter into an open-ended confrontation with the country that possesses the world's second largest economy and eliminate the the potential to salvage even a baseline of cooperation, regardless of what you think about you know China, for whether you think highly, think dimly of it, the reality is that the United States will not be able to assure its own vital national interests on a whole host of issues without a modicum of cooperation with China. Ali said that nobody is saying that the engagement policy wasn't without flaws or was it was perfect. And I actually, I've heard scholars like Tom Christensen and Evan Madero say that people have failed to appreciate that the policy of engagement didn't just involve engagement. It, of course, incur- included a deterrence, a hedging, and all sorts of different ways that administrations from Bush to Obama worked to you know deter a conflict across the Taiwan Strait and to use all the tools, not just um, carrots, but also sticks. And it was that combination that was, in their view, at least in, in, in Tom Christensen's view, very successful. We haven't had a war in Asia in decades. And so that's really something to to celebrate, even as we think about, okay, what's not working right now? What are the ways in which the United States and other uh, countries need to push back against you know, recent changes in Chinese policy under Xi Jinping? Yeah, and not to not to necessarily 
this isn't necessarily a reason to discount these folks' views like the and, and Richard Haas's of the world, but it's also important to note that they were part of this policy. And some, I, I, like if mid-level, senior-level officials have legacies, this is what they're tied up in. So it's understandable that these are the folks you're hearing in particular who are, I just Wikipedia'd. Christensen, it looks like he spent a few years in the last years of the... Bush administration as well. It's unsurprising that the, the loudest defenders of this of this era of diplomacy were personally involved. That's true. So That's true. But the fact that there hasn't been a war is an objective fact. So, you know, sure. we have okay. to also, I think, um, draw attention to what Ali said. It was the counterfactual, right? I think China on the inside working to change the rules of the game is better than China on the outside. We don't know what that angry and aggrieved China would have looked like. So another argument for you guys to chew over, the whole argument of guardrails, it seems to me that if all of the sort of goodwill and, and cultural exchanges and whatever that have been building up over the past ooh, 40 years, if this is the sort of thing that can be blown away in such a short time, were guardrails ever real to begin with? I think it's important to note that even as strategic distrust between the United States and China was intensifying... I mean, take take the, the latter years of the Obama administration. If you look at, you know, say, 2014 and 2015. So in 2012, there was a report uh, published by the Brookings Institution that got a lot of attention. It was Jeffrey Bader offering sort of an American's uh, perspective on growing strategic distrust between the United States and China. And then there was Wang just offering a Chinese perspective on on this growing distrust. Uh, it was an important report, came out in 2012, and it noted with concern that there was a perception of in China that America, after the global financial crisis, was potentially structurally or terminally in decline, that China's moment had arrived. Uh, and then there was a, a report that came out in, I believe, 2015, under the auspices of the Council on Foreign Relations. It was published by Robert Blackwell and Ashley Tellis. And it was arguing that U.S. policies towards China hadn't borne fruit and that they needed to be recalibrated. So if you look at even the latter years of the Obama administration, there, there were growing concerns issued by prominent scholars in both Washington and Beijing about the limitations of engagement, expressing concerns about growing strategic distrust. And yet, I think that there was still fruitful cooperation between the United States and China that was undergirded by a realization that for all of its complications and wrinkles, that some measure of trade and technological entanglement was necessary to support a relationship that really didn't have much of an organic foundation. I mean, the United States and, and China, they have very different time horizons. They have very different histories. They have very different understandings of internal governance, very different approaches to foreign policy. And so these are not two countries that have sort of an organic basis of affinity. And trade and technological interdependence have built up over the course of four decades, and particularly since China's accession to the World Trade Organization, it was something of a contrivance, but I think it was a contrivance that worked reasonably well for a while. And look at 2014. So in 2014, even as strategic distrust is intensifying, Washington and Beijing, they signed a landmark climate change agreement. The next year, I believe it was in November of, of uh, 2015, they signed a landmark agreement to promote trust in cyberspace. And so I, I think, and so going back to Elizabeth Economy's chapter for this Aspen Strategy Group volume, she makes the point that even as strategic distrust was intensifying, these various guardrails in the form of economic interdependence, cultural exchange, so on and so forth, China's deepening enmeshment in the international system, they did circumscribe competition. They did preserve room for cooperative uh, vistas. And it's only 
I would say it's we have to think about the dispositions and the decisions of individual leaders in recent years. I think we also have to look at the impact of the this exogenous shock in the form of a pandemic whose impact on taking the U.S.-China relationship in a unfortunate direction really can't be overstated. But I, I think that to just say that to say that engagement didn't produce or that these guardrails basically, if, if they could be blown away so quickly, I think that it it's sobering to see how vulnerable they've proven. But it, I don't think that it was preordained that if we had different leadership, if this pandemic hadn't occurred, if there had been different domestic political environments in both countries, I don't think it's preordained that those guardrails would have collapsed the way that they have this year. Sure. So let's talk about domestic political leadership. And I think the the core of the case of the other side of this argument lies with Xi Jinping and the way he's conducted himself over the past eight, eight years now. So the argument basically goes, this is a guy that has fundamentally reshaped the nature of Chinese governance and the trajectory of Chinese governance. We've seen incredibly aggressive moves in Hong Kong. We've seen a, a rollout of a horrific internment system in, in Xinjiang. We've seen more aggression over overseas in the past few years than we've had since Mao left the scene. What is it about the either that theory of the case about the Xi Jinping era is wrong? And how should the U.S. also recognize the fact that he is a large elderly man and at some point he will pass from the scene too? And how should the U.S. be preparing for the day that the Xi Jinping era ends while at the same time recognizing that he is the man in power for the foreseeable future? So we're seeing under Xi Jinping a much much more assertive, increasingly personalistic and repressive form of authoritarian rule in China, no question. And on the international stage, we've seen Xi Jinping try to move to the center, as he says, of global governance. And that's uh, created a lot of alarm about the kind of global order that Beijing will support. And this is, of course, half of the equation of the what what I termed a death spiral in U.S.-China relations. What gives me pause, I think, is that we're seeing signs in China that there's a growing recognition that their more assertive diplomacy, the sort of wolf-warrior style of bragging about the superiority of the Chinese system and poking at others is backfiring. Internal reporting has noted that China faces more antagonistic sentiment on the world stage now than at any time since 1989. And so I think we actually may be at peak wolf warrior diplomacy here in uh, mid-2020 with the Chinese government beginning, although it's you know not been a wholesale shift, to tone down modestly their rhetoric, uh, to caution those that would urge using force against Taiwan to, to cool it for a little bit, uh, that this is not the time to do that, that the goal of national rejuvenation is larger than that than that objective. And so I think that what we're seeing is the Chinese government preserving space and signaling a, a willingness to explore potential off-ramps to this intensifying competition and conflict uh, with the United States. Now, of course, on the U.S. side, we don't see a lot of interest and willingness in reciprocating to some kind of detente, if anything, the Trump administration seems to be fully embracing a new Cold War with China. So I don't that will go anywhere. But I do think at a minimum that it's important to recognize that Chinese foreign policy goes through these kinds of cyclical efforts to show 
off its their resolve. And then realizing once that's gone a little too far, then there's a, a backtracking and an attempt at, at reassurance. Sure. But you can also say, like, the reason maybe they realize they're going too far is because of the reaction that this has provoked. Sure. I just think that it means that China is under Xi Jinping trying to advance certain kind of interests that they deem vital to their national security. And there are plenty uh, of ways in which that has, I think, exhibited itself in ways that are also, you know, short-sighted and deeply worrying, whether that's in Hong Kong or in Xinjiang, but that this isn't, we aren't seeing uh, a regime that is bent on a conflict for the sake of conflict. And I think that's an important difference. I, I think it's, there's an interesting, an interesting duality with where we are just a few months out from the, uh, the presidential election. And it's that I think that the United States and China, I think are both, at least at the present moment, are ill disposed to take, take advantage of each other's strategic mistakes. So if I'm sitting in China, I think that given how given how poorly the United States uh, has responded to the pandemic thus far, both as measured by its domestic response and its international response, I think that China had a pretty, un- a pretty unusually favorable opportunity to I think, enhance its diplomatic stature, to advance its geoeconomic initiatives. And while it might be premature to say that China has completely squandered that opportunity, I, I don't think that China has done itself uh, favors. And I think that it's mirrored some of America's strategic errors with those of its own, whether whether you look at the, the ostensibly national security-based legislation that it passed vis-a-vis Hong Kong, intensifying pressure against Taiwan, its incursion into you know, India, its actions in the South China Sea. China has done more, I would say, to encircle itself in the past six months or in the past, let's say, even the past three months than the United States has been able to do in the past three years. And it's interesting. I think sort of Huawei offers an interesting you know, illustration the Trump administration had you know, pretty early on had decided that it, it had Huawei in its sights and it pursued a pretty aggressive campaign against Huawei. That campaign up until recently really hadn't borne much fruit. And in fact, there were many, many countries in in Europe and Asia, you know, long-standing allies of the United States that bristled at U.S. exhortations to prevent Huawei from building out their 5G networks. And I think it's only with the pandemic and this wolf warrior diplomacy that a lot of those same countries that were initially bristling at U.S. demands are now coming on board, not as a response to U.S. pressure, importantly, but as a response to China's conduct and as a sort of calculation of their own national interests. So China, by virtue of its uh, self-defeating diplomacy, to, to borrow uh, Jessica's phrase, I think has squandered an opportunity to take advantage of some of America's uh, strategic mistakes. There's an argument that you're sort of like doing a little like Dado Bang Jia here. You're imposing your framework of what matters and what doesn't to the Chinese decision-making over the past few months. There's another interpretation of what's happening as opposed to what you're saying is basically like, oh, they didn't really know what they were doing and they stumbled into this and now they're in a big mess. The other way of looking at it is saying saying that this regime saw an opportunity with the world being distracted and checking off off a, a, a Hong Kong national security law is a big win. Showing the Indians that they're serious on the border was something maybe they were trying to do for a long time now. And this was a, and someone walked on the wrong side of a, a line. And this was the month that, that the Chinese decided to, to really raise the stakes. You, you can interpret it the generous way and say, oh man, they're, they're, they're really seeing all this pushback and learning their lessons. But the fact is facts on the ground have changed in um, a number of places. And these things are clearly priorities. It's not like the, 
I don't think the, 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 the Chinese government is stupid in that they wouldn't think that there would be a big international reaction to this sort of thing. But their calculation of what is important may just be different from the, the one we would like them to have. And, and and I think that this point is really important, and and you preempted me with with your observation because I was going to say that the kind of the flip side of this interpretation is exactly what you said, and this raises a real uh, challenge for U.S. foreign policy. There's a lot of discussion in, in sort of the U.S. foreign policy establishment about how to impose costs on China, how do we deter China from pursuing certain courses of behavior. But I think that what China has demonstrated quite abundantly in recent months is that on issues that it considers to be vital national interests, and you know, perhaps its conception of vital national interests is somewhat elastic, but on issues that it incorporates under this banner of core interests, that China is willing to incur very significant reputational costs uh, in order to achieve its conception of those interests. And so whether it is cracking down on Hong Kong, whether it's intensifying pressure against Taiwan or asserting itself more regionally, I think if the takeaway is that China really is willing to go to the mat in defense of its core national interests, even incurring significant reputational costs in the process, then that raises a real conundrum for U.S. foreign policy, namely, what can we do to deter China from engaging in certain courses of, of behavior? I think the answer is probably not too much, certainly not alone. And I think that then the question becomes, okay, if the United States unilaterally is quite limited in what it can achieve in terms of compelling China to adopt a certain course of behavior. What can the United States, in partnership, importantly, with its allies in Europe and Asia, do to shape over the medium to long term, shape the external environment in which China pursues its further uh, resurgence? But you're absolutely right that I think that China has made clear that if it is if it has decided that a core national interest at stake, it is willing to incur very significant costs. And that raises real problems for a, a, a cost imposition strategy. Where does Biden go from here? Do you think what has happened over the past few months and um, what will likely continue, the trajectory that will likely continue before the election is something that's irreversible? And if not, given your guys' theory of the case, what are the sort of steps that a Biden administration could take to uh, potentially reverse the trajectory? So I think that the uh, prospective Biden administration could do a lot more to compete effectively on the international stage. Right now, we see the Trump administration speaking very loudly, but bringing very little to the table in terms of what it's offering allies and like-minded countries around the world that are concerned about China's growing authoritarianism and its export of surveillance technology apps, etc. And I think the United States in the in a perspective, Biden administration would have a lot to do to, I think, restore U.S. leadership in the world and at home. And so that, I think, will actually do a lot if the United States is successful in doing so to provide uh, a counterweight or an attractive alternative to what China is doing. The fact that China is you know, not bent on, in my view, remaking other countries in its image, I think actually means that such a strategy will have a lot more likelihood of succeeding, because I don't think as a core interest in whether or not Ecuador, for example, or Tanzania follow exactly China's path. They're much more concerned about what's happening in Hong Kong, as Ali mentioned, other things in the Asia Pacific. And so that means that a global effort to resuscitate U.S. standing, I think, could succeed and, and do a lot to reshape the playing field. 
Yeah. It's, we're recording this on July 29th. And just thinking of this in the context of Pompeo giving all these speeches, talking about how the U.S. is the defender of human rights in the world, and then you see uh, Trump sending in DHS unmarked police into cities across America. A, a different domestic tenor to a lot of an administration, which is obviously not going to try this, try to pull this sort of shit, I think will certainly be, be reacted to differently among the sort of international community you're trying to persuade to get on board with um, these sorts of value-based arguments. One of the best ways, perhaps the best way for the United States to compete with China over the long term um, is to renew its uh, democracy at home, uh, to make its democracy a more, to build up the middle class more effectively, to renew the American social compact, and to to stand for something again, or at least more affirmatively, rather than just focusing on what it rejects. I, One of the limitations of uh, the Trump administration's you know, strategy towards China, such as it is, is that it's focused much more on, it's far more explicit about what it stands against than about what it stands for. And one of the reasons that even now, even though in light of China's wolf warrior diplomacy, there are a number of countries in Europe and and Asia that are taking a uh, sort of a, a sterner disposition vis-a-vis -vis Beijing, but even many of those longstanding allies are still wary of coming on board with the United States, one, because they are nervous about America's own unilateral proclivities and um, erratic foreign policy, number one. And number two, they're dismayed by what they see happening in the United States domestically. And it's, I, I think it's difficult to overstate the optical damage that the pandemic has wrought on America's standing in the world. The perception that how can a country that has pretensions to global leadership be entrusted with that mandate if it's manifestly incapable of taking care of its own population. I think a lot of allies who are increasingly wary of China's behavior are saying we can't necessarily make common cause with the United States because of its own domestic preoccupations. And so in terms of what that means for a you know prospective Biden administration, I think that a prospective Biden administration would be far more likely to make common cause with longstanding allies. And I think importantly to to treat them as friends and partners on their own merits rather than as instruments of its own bilateral uh, preoccupation with China. I think that one of the concerns that many countries have about making common cause with the United States right now is that they're wary of being instrumentalized um, in an effort to counterbalance or even contain China. And no matter how grave your apprehensions may be about China, I think that for me, certainly in the Asia-Pacific the realities of geography, geographic proximity, and economic dependence dictate that you can't push back too far. And so I, I suspect that in a perspective by an administration, there will be more of an emphasis on enhancing, or I should say, restoring the allure of American democracy and, the, and bringing closer the promise or the reality of American democracy to the promise of American democracy. So more of an emphasis on domestic renewal more of an emphasis on making common cause with allies and treating them on and bringing them on board to deal with multilateral challenges rather than just treating them as instruments of a competition. And it all boils down to both that domestic effort and that international effort. What they boil down to really is the United States needs to be able to say, not just in competing with China, but in, in thinking about its foreign policy more generally, it needs, to it needs to articulate a much clearer affirmative case. What is it that the United States stands for as opposed to what it just stands against? And what we've seen thus far is, I think under the Trump administration, is a foreign policy that is driven, not exclusively, but that is driven in large part by um, repelling China. 
What I think we need to see instead is the United States devising sort of its own theory of the case. Where is it that the United States would like to go? And once it has an affirmative vision for where it is it would like to go, figuring out where sustainable smart competition with China fits into that broader vector, rather than having a foreign policy that is designed purely as a reaction to what China is doing or not doing. I'm 